You're listening to Attention, the audio journal for architecture. This is issue number five, the question of theory. This sixth piece addresses the question, how do you teach architectural theory? It features contributions by Joseph Godlewski, Jake Matatiao, John May, Ginger Nolan, Brian Norwood, Ivan Santoyo Orozco, Meredith Tenhor, and Marika Trotter. In this sixth and penultimate piece in our issue on the question of theory, we turn to particular pedagogical details of education and ask each of our participants, how do you teach architectural theory? We ask what are the ways that each person teaches architectural theory in their specific classroom and their specific school? How do they approach this as a pedagogical challenge? Do they approach architectural theory as something to survey or to explicate, perhaps chronologically, thematically, or philosophically? Or as something to do, to demonstrate, to perform in the classroom? And what are the methods that each person uses in the classroom to teach architectural theory? We even ask whether architectural theory is teachable at all. We start this episode with Meredith Tenhor and Joseph Godlewski, sharing their thoughts about teaching architectural theory as a history of architectural theory. Meredith discusses the challenge of teaching students whose ability to read theory seems to be different from previous generations, an issue that others will also acknowledge later in the episode. First, Meredith Tenhall. At Pratt, we've combined history and theory, and we have two years of it. Um, So theory kind of always comes out of a historical moment, and it's produced in response to historical transformation, um, and sometimes it leads historical transformation, whether that's within architecture or, or within the world it's quite useful to combine theory and history. It makes the context out of which theories emerged uh, more apparent to students. It makes them realize that theory is something that's produced historically and that's contingent and, and I think it offers them the ability to feel legitimated when they when they make their own theories and they experiment with theoretical writing, which I think is a very important part of an architectural education. But there are a number of challenges, uh, the first of which is that, you know, students read so differently now than they did when I was in school. And I don't encounter many of them, although some, we had some really brilliant ones, who are willing to slowly go through a text and able to, to take the time to learn how to read nuances in language Um, and to engage linguistically in the way that I think often a deep engagement with certain kinds of theory requires. There are other kinds of theory that are written in other registers, some that are driven visually, and I think those can open up important conceptual frameworks for students, but I I do find it harder and harder to teach the the kind that that really require careful analysis. I, I don't ask my students to read The Subaltern Cannot Speak anymore, (laughs) although I, you know, would take a whole class to do it 10 years ago. Um, Well, I talked a little bit about the the Popova and, um, you know, that we will look at that alongside Mayan architecture and culture and the Yingzhou Fashi, which we look at alongside of the court architecture, the period that it was written. You know, there's this incredible Boileau text that's in Malgrave's 
architectural theory compendium that's just about like thinking about reflections of glass and how it creates atmosphere. And we also read that alongside some Walter Benjamin, and we realize that a lot of the things Benjamin's getting at, Boileau manages to say in about six paragraphs, and it takes Benjamin a lot longer. Of course, it's incredibly rich and wonderful, and Benjamin goes in many other places, but those are a couple of examples of how we can place our architectural theoretical production alongside the work of historians and theorists and critics and alongside works of architecture so that we see all of these things as forms of production that need critical apparatuses and critical thinking in order to uh, decode and make sense of and understand the significance of, but all forms of creation and production. So I, I'm really against sort of placing the thing as separate from the theory, because to me, the theories are things too. Joseph Godlewski. I think there is a, a bit more tendency to, for, for me, to do kind of a history of theory so that you become familiar with the discourse, that you become familiar with the names and the vocabulary and the, the way that other people have done it. So there, you, you kind of develop a sense of, of the discipline um, as well as the, the vocabulary to, to, to speak about these things. But it isn't purely that. I mean, I think that, that even in those courses, like for example, I will break those classes down fairly chronologically, but like it usually starts chronologically, but, but then starts to kind of break down into, into themes. But I have the students present video projects in class, almost like a studio review, where, all right, you, you made this and you made these claims, right? Now it's all open for critique and anybody in the, the auditorium can, can say something about it and I can run through my list of kind of critiques or questions about it. And it's open for, for criticism. It's not some sort of um, perfect thing. Like it's always going to be open for critique and people are going to have different kind of positions on it. Um, so there's, there's a bit of kind of active critical thinking. Whether or not they're actually um, theorizing or projecting new worlds, I think that, that that comes later. I feel as though that's you, you need to kind of have a kind of disciplinary base before you are projecting new worlds, right? Like, <laughs> otherwise you're very vulnerable to, to just making kind of naive claims. Among those who do not teach a history of theory or whose focus is primarily on contemporary themes are Jake Matatiao, Brian Norwood, and Ginger Nolan. Brian and Ginger do not favor the chronological sampling of theories in their teaching and foreground instead the performative nature of architectural theory, which Jake cautions us against. First, Brian Norwood. I would definitely say that teaching theory requires the performance of theoretical thinking. There's probably nothing worse than a theory class or even a history class that sees itself as a kind of recitation of past theories and in that there's lots of dangers, but one of them would be a sort of progressivist narrative that implicitly exists in any assumption that, well, here's the ones that we have done, this has gotten us to this, to this, and to the present where we are now. So I think performance of theory is really important in the sense that it seems 
valuable to read any text as if it still might have something to say, but also as we choose text to be choosing them for the reason that this might have something to say to you. Of course, the danger there is this reduction of theory down to something operative, right? This sort of Tiforian critique that we can't get away from, that if you start reading texts that you think can be put to use by architects, then you wind up letting the present dominate any relationship to the past. What seems useful to me is to, instead of framing theory or history courses as attempts to make the past present, I, I like the idea of making the present past, or at least making the present pass. The idea that theory or history classes are there to let us see how tenuous and frail our current condition is and to see that it could be different. In that sense, like critical reflection is actually a way of unburdening theory or unburdening the architect from the way things are at the present moment. I think that framing it that way, at the very least, makes us think about theory and history as tools that relate to the present without being operative in them. Jake Matetiao. I have no problem with performance in other contexts, but the danger of performance is that it becomes just that, that it becomes just purely for the performance and there's nothing behind it. There's no content or there's no urgency or like motivation in the world, right? So like if it just becomes performance and it's about like learning the right way to say something, then that's the kind of performance that I want to avoid. Teaching architectural theory, to me, it's really simple. It's like getting the students to talk to one another. Getting, getting the students to read, spend some time with something, right? Um, an idea or a work, and then talk about it with each other, right? Just an exchange of ideas, as simple as that. Guess, you know, that exchange of ideas would sort of need to be constrained or circumscribed or channeled, right? In a, in a certain direction so that it doesn't become just subjective opinion, like, I like this, I don't like this, this is good, this is bad. How do we tease out the consequences of those judgments? I mean, terms that are important to me in any class that I teach are understanding, judgment, meaning, knowledge, validity. I try to equip the students with this kind of way of being more specific about their thinking. Ginger Nolan. I, I don't see my role as a teacher to give students a kind of global sampling of thought around the world over the millennia or over the centuries. The way I'm thinking of theory really is how I can help students acquire intellectual habits and methodological tools they need to approach architecture in an intellectually responsible way. I've broken an architectural theory class into three main categories, which is sort of theories of theory, objects of theory, and, and modes of theory. So a way to look at sort of why we theorize and what that means and certain kinds of categories and objects that have been constituted by theory that might be questioned. And then what those sort of research methodologies are, what their limitations are. Um, and so I really struggle with the fact that on the one hand, I think the intellectual skills they need are very much based in learning how to struggle through a text, right? On the other hand, you don't want to lose them. And sort of one way I was proposing to do this, because I'm teaching 
a theory course as a lecture to like more than 100 students is I'm thinking of like partnering students up with each other based on what are their kind of relative comfort levels with reading and writing, you know, which based on both issues of English not being a first language for some of them, but also based on, you know, different undergrad education and different levels of preparedness for reading and writing and their education. So it's not just about stronger students helping weaker students. I mean, I think that is also useful for both, but as a way of helping students understand things differently and showing different ways things can be understood. And so my hope is that therefore one can assign challenging texts without estranging students and without teaching them that theory is something that must be leveraged for a certain kind of prestigious architectural practice and therefore becomes a kind of way of asserting power. That's actually what I don't want to teach them, but I think you run the risk of doing that when you assign them texts that are difficult for them to access. And this kind of raises another issue, which for me has become increasingly relevant in the way um, we are taught to teach in some ways. We're taught increasingly to be kind of police people and that we have to police our students. We give them very hard readings that they find it very difficult to do. And then we assign them reading responses as a way to police them. Because that's really why we're doing it. I mean, sometimes, yes, if it's a small class and you have the time to read 15 you know, reading responses, it's in order to kind of get a grasp on where your students are coming from. But if you have 120 students, I'm not going to read 120 reading responses. So I don't want to use a reading response because I'm not going to read it. That's just the policing mechanism. And I don't want to be a police person. And that's, I think, very hard when students are disinclined to do the reading. And that's sort of why I thought of this contrivance, right, of having students help each other. Brian Norwood again. There's, there's challenges on the student side, and then there's one, I think, on the side of faculty. The one on the side of faculty, at least, would be that students, to me, are not actually afraid of engaging with difficult issues of race, religion, gender, class. But in some places you might see the fear of making that the primary focus of an architectural theory class coming from faculty rather than students. So I think my experience, at least with 18 to 20 something year olds in architecture schools is that they really care about issues that theory hopefully is moving towards. But on the student side, I do see the challenge of A, of getting people to read, right? This is the perennial challenge that, you know, you go back through any architecture school's archives and find these same complaints that architecture students tend to have maybe less energy or desire to sit down and read for extended period of times. So maybe that's just a given. But the other challenge too is trying to figure out where the place of writing is in their educational process. Like, yes, we can all say the better you are at writing, it's going to make things easier for you when you get out in professional practice, right? But understanding writing as a way of thinking, trying to convince and show students that writing can be like the design process, that it's a way of repetitively working out and uh, trying to find something new. I found that a bit more challenging. So I think kind of building this idea that writing is a form of design thinking is something valuable that I have not found a really good method into that yet. In the next and final part of the exchange, we hear from Mariah Catrotta, who shares her thoughts on how and why she has organized her class around a very recent set of architectural writings, 
Yvonne Santoya Orozco then talks us through how she makes sites central to her course and how she uses them to determine the text that she chooses. And John May stresses the importance of methodology to what he views as the potential future development of an intellectual attitude towards the world. First, Marika Trotter. I do make an effort to tie what prominent studio instructors are doing in their own practice, and it trickles into their studios, of course, to specific notions that we cover in the class. Um, because I want students to understand that there are stakes and positions behind what they're learning. So in the sense that I want them to gain an awareness of how they themselves are being educated, I think it's super useful. I wouldn't say and I wouldn't condone at all that theory is in any way a series of apologias for studio. I don't think it needs to tie in, but I do think it should be aware of what's happening in studio. Like I think your responsibility as a theory instructor is to know what approaches are being covered in studio and what aren't. Which approaches are being left off the table? Why are they being left off the table? Why aren't we covering those things at this specific school or that specific school? What do we stand for as a school? Do we have a philosophy? Students are not aware of those things. They have, in my opinion, very little understanding of how their school is positioned vis-a-vis -vis other schools. And architectural theory becomes a moment for them to understand that. I cover the history of theory as part of teaching architectural history. So that means I'm totally free in a terrifying way when I get to architectural theory because I've just spent three semesters, me or one of my colleagues, going through historical discourse and historical thought relative to the discipline. Um, and that means you can't just assign the known knowns. So you're forced to go and deeply engage with contemporary discourse, which means a terrifying number of pieces from log. It means sometimes you're assigning things that you're not really sure that they're gonna stand the test of time. It means that you're forced to at least partially rewrite your syllabus every year because new things get published, the stakes change, and the uh, discussions have moved on. I start out the semester with, I call them P's. I start out the semester with P's. They include, as far as I can tell, major uh, strains of thought, big problems that are really pressuring or impacting architectural discourse. So like one of the ones that we covered was posthumanism. Posthumanism is a big new train of thought that's messing with a lot of architectural values. So we covered that. But other P's were more generative and less challenging, like possible worlds. Or parafiction, again, something that doesn't come from architecture, comes from art. But the first lecture of the semester is actually one on perspectives. And it does cover a lot of historical material, but then it messes it up with a lot of other, quote, perspectives, besides uh, the Western tradition of perspective, just to kind of set the frame. We're now in this pluralistic discourse. It's no longer sufficient for us to simply consider the white male fixed gaze. And therefore, we are in a very exciting moment of radically rethinking what architectural theory could be. And then we get into sort of <laughs> some problems the problem of nature or the environment. These are the things that are these existential issues that we either have to get a handle on or won't really matter if we're doing architectural theory or not because there won't be people, you know, or there won't be the kind of financial excess that would allow architecture to exist in a meaningful way. Or... And then the third section of the class is potential strategies that are beginning to emerge in response to these issues. There will be a subset of architectural practices that I've grouped together. And so every week, these practices are being positioned relative to those two things. 
How is it relating to new modes of thinking? And how is it relating to the fundamental problem of our era, which I would define as a problem of imagination, not a problem that, that is going to be solved technologically. And I'm speaking now of the environment. And that means it's susceptible to architectural solutions. It's not going to be because we figure out a new way to develop housing in Los Angeles. It's going to be because we as a discipline are going to be part of bringing new possibilities to how we imagine our status on the planet in life. So defined in that way, then architecture has a lot to add, not just a lot at stake. It's about architecture being somehow enfranchised to actually get people to imagine their status differently. Yvonne Santoyo Orozco. I try to give a lot of little assignments to students to break down a course into small, tangible pieces of writing that they can engage with that also have a sort of visual part. Uh, because I also think that, as I said, if architectural theory is also a way to think visually, also spatially about the world, a lot of architectural students also think through visual means. I try to do a lot of work on kind of trying to help students situate a given reading or a given period in a larger context. One of the things I, I'm, I'm always trying to do is to do these critical genealogies for them. And then when I ask something in return, I ask for this kind of tiny little piece of writing that also have this visual component. For example, I have this course called Architecture and the Neoliberal Debate. And one of the things I do is to confront them with a number of voices from political theory or economical theory that are, yes, indeed dominant, that have indeed defined what neoliberalism might mean. We begin actually from outside the discourse because we analyze a text, but then we analyze how that text begins to have parallel histories in architecture um, as a form of discussion. Ginger Nolan. My mandate is to teach a, like a late 20th, early 21st century course. And in that context, it is extremely easy to not teach a course about white men's texts and arguments with each other. It's only a challenge if one is being asked to also at the same time fulfill a certain kind of canonical architectural historical requirements as understood by other people, you know, not by oneself. Yvonne Santoyo Orozco again. So at the moment, I am teaching a course around seven topics that have global concern that go from labor, environment, technology, uh, culture. And from that, I select a, a series of sites. And these are sites that have a kind of generic nature that almost presuppose a veneer of neutrality. For example, for labor, I look at how can we construct a genealogy of spaces of work, of immaterial work, as a way to understand relationships between architecture and labor. So I look, for example, at desks, at factories, and at campuses. So these are, in a way, sites of labor, of knowledge production. And each of them, I present them through a series of genealogies. And I bring back references from political theory to try to understand uh, the relation between those case studies that I go through in the genealogy and, and its potential political repercussions. But I don't start by the question of like, how can I bring those treatises back? I start from the questions of what are the sites that we should speak about today because the students should understand these sites, because it's not only sites that they are engaged designing, 
but they are also the signs that are dominating the spatial world. I begin with those questions and if they take me back to a treatise by Durant, I'll take it. But if they don't, I will leave it behind. And, and of course, I have the freedom to use them or not when I, when I can because they already know them. But I think what is interesting is to instrumentalize them, to mobilize them, to construct kind of a different history of labor, for example, that I think is, is relevant to speak about today. John May. I don't teach architectural theory. I teach a kind of philosophical interrogation of technical conditions. And those technical conditions can be of various time periods, but they, they at least at minimum tend to involve some kind of philological engagement with contemporary technical systems. When I say philological, I mean an excavation, a kind of historical excavation of the terms, the language, the preconditions under which a certain kind of technical routine or command might have arisen. Those tend to be very productive exercises for design students because what they learn in doing those exercises is that buttons that they push on their screen all day long are incredibly consequential things and have deep historical technical roots. And oftentimes those deep roots are not at all, were in no way tied to architectural reasoning. They were tied to either military applications, but far more benign terms. They might have been tied to telegraphy or telephony. And it just gives them a better sense that the work that they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis is so deeply shaped by the enormous technical conditions of contemporary culture that any architectural arguments or any architectural pronouncements towards grandiosity within the technical domain just become nonsensical. I mean, as architects, we are not running the technical conditions under which we exist. We are subject to them. And I think that's an extremely important thing for architects to recognize and be conscious of. At, at the end of the course, what I care about far more than the assimilation of a particular body of knowledge is having learned to read and think in specific ways, certain what Ian Hacking calls styles of reasoning, learning to read a text on two registers at once, that is both for its content and for what we said kind of atmosphere or mood that individual has towards these basic questions what it means to think in the world and what it means ultimately to intervene in the world because this is it's one of the dimensions of not only being an architect but teaching architects is to say that we are fundamentally engaged in intervening and hoping to change the world in some way and I think with that added weight the at least the courses that I teach ultimately absolutely are meant to introduce a kind of critical reflection into one's work not an instrumentally critical reflection and I'm very adamant about that when I teach that that I would be frustrated if not appalled if they were to think that anything they learned in my class was directly applicable to the work that they were doing up in the studio I'm quite adamant about that not only in my own work but in the value of theory for architecture more generally, that design and theory maintain from one another a kind of useful and meaningful distance from one another. But anyone living in 2018 can hopefully agree with the fact that to teach people today to have an intellectual attitude towards the world is a meaningful political act. Um, that, for me, oftentimes, it's a good grounding for any topic in my teaching. This sixth piece on how architectural theory classes are taught addresses a range of detailed pedagogical questions, from what assignments to give, what to read, 
where the readings should be from the past or recent present, canonical or not, and whether the course should be focused on problems, sites, or discourses. Some preferred to teach theory as a history of past ideas. While still allowing for some thematic organisation along the way, this backbone of historical knowledge can give a clear criterion for what counts as rigour, and can prevent claims being naive or merely opinion. The tendency to prioritise history within theory classes might have something to do with the fact that many people who teach theory classes today tend to have graduated from doctoral programmes that almost exclusively focus on history rather than theory. But despite this, there is always still a tension when teaching theory as to how much one emphasises the past of theory or the present situation. The danger of emphasising the past too much is that it becomes antiquarian and disconnected from the present. As some argued, it is important in the theory class to do something different from the history course. If students are to read from historical texts, it would, given the context of the theory class, be important to instrumentalise them more. The danger of emphasising the present too much, though, is that the concern of the present tend to distort one's reading of the past. History then loses its critical edge, and the past fails to challenge our assumptions. One version of a more presentist approach to teaching theory is to do theory in the classroom, to perform or exemplify certain modes of thinking. A danger of this, however, is that it can turn the class into a theatre of charisma, where the criteria of doing well becomes embodied in the example of the professor themselves. Another presentist approach is to teach the very discourse of the school. This approach turns the classroom into a place to explicate and negotiate the very ideological commitments of the professors and of the school. A persistent concern among those teaching theory today is the changes taking place in habits of reading and the perceived decline in close, slow and careful analysis of texts. Some said that this decline is a result of students' patience or ability to concentrate. Some argued that there is a much more deeply rooted tendency for architects to see reading and writing as secondary to drawing and model making. And some argued that reading problems are actually exacerbated by the large class sizes today and the increase of students with English as a second language. In the seventh and final piece of this issue on the question of theory, we address the question of where we stand today with theory in general, and whether theory is dead, as a generation of professors in the 2000s once argued. If this is the case, what does it mean to teach theory after the end of theory? And if not, where is theory now? You've been listening to Attention, the audio journal for architecture. Issue 5, The Question of Theory. Issue 5 was written and directed by Joseph Bedford and was edited and produced by Ari Korati. Thanks to the Graham Foundation for generous support.